Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. Today's guest is Paul Davidson, head of film and TV for The Orchard. The independent distributor is expected to be one of the most active companies at this year's Sundance Film Festival. In preparation for Sundance, Brett Lang, Variety's executive editor of Film and Media, spoke with Davidson about his approach to deal-making, why documentaries are all the rage again, and how The Orchard distinguishes itself from other studios. I'm Brent Lang, and I'm the Variety Executive Editor of Film and Media, and I'm joined here today at our New York studio with Paul Davidson, who is the Executive Vice President of Film and Television at The Orchard, one of the uh, premier indie studios working in the space right now. Uh, The Orchard is very busy uh, this award season. Um, They have El Angel coming out, uh, an acclaimed foreign film, and also... The party's just beginning. Upcoming films of The Orchard include Birds of Passage, The Hummingbird Project, State Like Sleep, and Under the Eiffel Tower. Very pleased to have Paul with me today. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Good to see you. So, Paul, um, I think to start, why don't we talk a little bit about Sundance? The slate has been announced, or at least Mm -hmm. the bulk of the slate. I'm interested, will you be at the festival this year? Will you be looking for product uh, when you hit Park City? Of course. I mean, this is Sundance is the pendulate um, festival for us uh, next to Cannes and Toronto. Um, so we will be there in force as we have been for the last set of years. It's interesting um, to watch uh, and, and anticipate what we think will happen there, especially with respect to competition at the festival. One of the trends that we had seen mostly out of 2016 and 17 was this scenario where you had the S- the streaming services who had yet to really spin up their production and development you know entities and so as a result everything was getting bid up fairly high you were seeing huge you know price tags on content and then what we saw over the of last year specifically which we anticipated was this change in the marketplace where the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world already had most of their product um, in development production, and some of the other indies were also starting production, development and production themselves. And so um, it actually regulated last year, and that's something that you know we, we anticipate to happen this year as well. And uh, we're looking forward to the, the slate that's there. When, when you talk, when you say the word regulated, do you mean that prices came back down to earth a little bit? Yes, they did. Last year was a good example of, of movies selling for what you would expect them to sell for based on how you model a movie and what you think, you know, looking at historical comps of what a movie can do. You know, that's every, every distributor who's picking up a movie has their set of numbers that they're, they're running when they're looking at what they can pay for a film. And typically, Netflix uh, and Amazon were always paying, you know, two times that, maybe three times that. Some of that because they're buying out the lifetime of the product. And so filmmakers and producers and investors will never have the opportunity for upside. And so they're compensating them for that. Um, but yeah, there was, um, you know, there, it's going to regulate, regulated last year. It'll regulate more this year as well. The only kind of wild card this year is documentaries because this last year documentaries, you know, gross revenue at the box office that we've never seen, um, over the last 10 years. But before this year, typically we would expect four or five movies to break 2 million at the box office from a documentary standpoint. And this year you're seeing 
huge numbers. I mean, 10 million plus on, you know, five, six, seven movies this year. So the expectation is uh, the agents and the the sales agents will be coming to town with an expectation to um, get much higher value for the documentaries based on the potential opportunity for docs to explode again next year. So that's a good question because it seems like in, in Hollywood often um – you know, there's a lot of imitation, right? Things that work. Studios are eager to sort of do the same thing that worked for someone else. How do you, you know, balance the the fact that documentaries seem to be doing quite well right now uh, with maybe the risk that that's something of an anomaly, right? That maybe there were just a few projects that really resonated with people, that it's not some kind of larger uh, popular embrace of that uh, medium when you're making your decisions. Well, I think that's what you have to do. You can't get caught up in the you know the buzz and the business of it all. You have to stay true to what you think a film is going to do. It's it's tough because suddenly you're looking at a list of comps from the last year that are generating you know five to ten million dollars at the box office, and those always are these outliers that come into play when you're you know modeling out what you think you can pay for a film. But our philosophy, I mean, we. We're not we're not spending at the upper echelon um, to where we're going to drop you know millions and millions of dollars on a documentary. It's just the reality um, because you have to plan for the scenario where it doesn't resonate. There have been films in the past we've picked up um, documentaries that we thought were very theatrical that didn't necessarily deliver in that window the way we had expected. And you know if you if you overspend in that scenario, it can really ruin your year. And you you know you just have to be cognizant and careful about how um, how aggressive you get. What about uh, the slate on paper? And obviously, a lot of times you go into these festivals and you think, oh, these are going to be the movies that really uh, deliver. Maybe it's because they have a big star or they have a director who's, who's proven themselves in the past. And, you know, lo and behold, there's some surprise that, that you never saw coming that, that starts some kind of bidding war. But on paper, what do you think about... Um, this year's selection. Do, do these films look commercial, compelling? What, what are your sort of impressions? I think with respect to the narrative films that are at the festival this year, there's, there's a good handful of uh, commercial projects. I think um, Late Night, which is the Mindy Kaling film, um, we've been tracking for some time. We read the script. It's a very commercial film. Um, Emma Thompson, I mean, is is in there in that film as well. It's a it's a great cast of characters. And you know, if it delivers, it could could it be a big sick esque? Um, maybe not that big, but I think it it has the potential to attract studios who are looking for additional content. You know, I could see that if it works. That's a movie that goes for you know, four to six million in domestic MG and that potentially goes, you know, maybe that is an Amazon, maybe that's a Lionsgate, perhaps that's a Paramount, if it's at that level. The, f- the funny and sad thing at the same time is, you know, we say we, we're, we're looking for movies that are um, what we're passionate about that um, are really going to deliver, but also if they're perfect, they're probably going to be at the level of expense that a studio would suddenly jump into. So, you know, you you're always looking for the the movies that are not perfect. Like we we have this joke where when we're watching films at festivals that are comedies, especially, 
A, we don't laugh because we don't want to laugh and contribute to the overall uh, perception in, a, in an audience with buyers that the movie is amazing. And every laugh costs us more money. So it's like you kind of live in this world of like, it's, it's really good, but it's not amazing. It's going to cost this. It's not going to cost that. Um, but anyway, so Late Night is one of those examples of it's for sure going to be a commercial film. I think there are, there are new filmmakers, so new producers or new filmmakers bringing content to Sundance that um, they've gone through the Sundance labs and we've been a, a aware of these titles for some time and they've kind of made it through over the last three years finally to, to green light and to you know, physical production. There's a film called Wolf Hour with uh, Naomi Watts, um, originally with Jennifer Connelly. This was um, a film that has made it through the, the labs for some time and, and set in the 70s and could be a good performance uh, for Naomi. Um, there's a film, and I'm going to, and it's horrible, I'm spacing on the name. It's um, Alec Baldwin is in it, Judith Light. Um, it's a kind of a New York based comedy about two sisters who find out that their mother is a, still alive and she's a soap opera actress. That's another one that went through the Sundance Labs that um, we've read the script. We know the, the talent and we, you know, kind of been waiting to see what was going to happen with that. Um, I'm trying to think across the board with some of the other films that are there. There's not, there's not a huge amount of like big sick type films this year, but I think that the the slate of films is a little broader um, than last year. Last year felt to me personally um, like um, it was very much a response to kind of what was going on in our world and in the country and, um, you know, some of the issues that I think were present in representation of women and, and minorities and African-Americans. I mean, you saw on the heels of, of Moonlight winning Best Picture, there was uh, the Sundance slate was very kind of it was darker it was kind of holding up a mirror to society and what was going on in a way that there was a lot of powerful films but when it came down to what film is going to generate money at the box office there were less of those movies there were films that came out of Sundance last year that um, were great and critically acclaimed but just didn't connect and I think that that's an example of audiences you know having had experienced that one great film the previous year that filled a certain genre um, or spoke to them in a certain way and then there were three or four of them the following year and people just you know reached a point of, of saturation with respect to that and I think you'll you're going to see a lot of docs this year go for a significant amount of money and they're not all going to deliver um, Cameron Crowe has a uh, documentary he's produced um, that I think the music doc that, that could do well there's a um, there's a doc called the I think the Amazing Jonathan about this kind of quirky magician. His story sounds like it could be fun. Um, you know, Apollo Eleven is there, which um, is already being distributed by Neon, um, and we saw we saw footage of that almost a year ago. We were you know it came down to I believe Neon and us looking at that movie, and that's a spectacular film where they, they have all of this amazing footage from the Apollo 11 missions that people have never seen that were um, remastered in 4K. I mean, it's, it's, it's an experience. So th that's the other thing. There's a lot of movies that already have um, distribution across Netflix, across uh, Neon has that title. I think A24 has three titles. We have Birds of Passage there. So there you, that becomes the trend that we see uh, more and more. We saw it at Cannes this last year is when you look at the films that are available, the, there's a higher percentage of films that are already spoken for 
Um, and so it just it, it limits the, the titles that are available. But I think it, it kind of it all balances out in, in the wash at the end of the day because you have less streaming services, less companies that are looking for product because they're already producing or have already pre-acquired those, those films. Um, you were talking about a movie like Late Night um, that that seems very commercial that could sell for four to six million dollars. Um, when you when you purchase something for that price, what do you actually need to do at the box office in order to make that back? And when you factor in marketing and other kinds of costs, mm-hmm. well, um, you know, when we look at uh, the numbers behind acquiring a movie, we're looking at all the windows. We're attributing a certain dollar amount to, you know, you're making 40% of the box office, right? So you, you can calculate that. Typically, your SVOD, your pay one deals are tied to a percentage of the box office. So you can calculate, if you believe based on comps, that that $4 million pickup is going to do $8 million at the box office, then you're probably going to do 20 to 25% in your first pay window of that number. Um, you look at comps on digital and, and cable, the ancillary pieces, at the end of the day, from our perspective, when we look at uh, a film and a P&L of a movie, we're, we're hoping to target somewhere in like the 25 to 30% um, net profit range. So we use our comps, we map it out, we, you know, we, we put in there what we're going to spend on P&A, what we think it takes. I mean, typically in the industry, the modest way of thinking about it is if you are expecting $8 million at the box office, you probably need to spend close to $8 million to make that in, uh, in your box office. We've been fortunate... And some movies in the past where word of mouth really is significant, like A Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, I don't know that we've we've shared it before, but I don't mind sharing it. I mean, we spent 1.2 million on P and A for that movie and generated close to five million at the box office. Like when you can do that, that's a word of mouth film. It's it's kind of tough to do that. I mean, it it doesn't happen often, but where you you can spend so modestly, then you're in you're in amazing shape. But typically, it's you know spend eight to make eight. And so you just you have to build out all those numbers and ensure that you're seeing you know you believe we do you know a low base and high case scenario where do we think that base case scenario is and and then that tells us what we can spend. And have you found that that when you sort of map out the potential lifespan of a film that you acquire at one of these festivals is it pretty accurate? <laughs> I mean are, are you it, you know it's um it's it's tough to say. I mean, um, more often than not, it's tough. It's it, I would say probably you know we're building a slate. So when we look at you know the eight to ten theatricals we're we're acquiring a year, if we've been conservative and we've we've matched we've kind of locked to that base case. Once some are going to overperform, some are going to underperform, and generally at the end of the day, unless you have a big failure or a huge success. Your, your singles and doubles maybe overperform and your, your home runs don't. It kind of balances out on a title-by-title title basis. You know, do, do those numbers, how close are we to those original expectations? If uh, I don't think anybody's, anybody's great at it. It's all instinct and, and comps. Maybe 60% of the time, 60 to 70% of the time, are you in the neighborhood, plus or minus, you know, 5%, 10% of the number. But it's just things, you know... Like, for example, we picked up The Hummingbird Project at Toronto, and um, for it's a great movie, very modest MG, and we haven't even released the movie yet, and some of the ancillary windows we've already secured are above and beyond what we've spent to get the movie. So we know going into a movie like that, wow, we the first pay window was so significant for that film because of the cast with Salma Hayek and Jesse Eisenberg and Skarsgård that 
um, we're feeling great going into that movie because you know spend P and A is basically the only thing we have to kind of recoup with all the other windows. So sometimes you just you you luck out in a way you never expected. I mean the movies that we distribute from Taika Waititi, which is what we do in the Shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People. These movies were very modest pickups. They've you know collectively probably made more money the two of those movies than any uh, any other film that we have on our slate. Um, collectively, they probably generated ten to twenty million dollars in in net revenue um, because they become they become these word of mouth cult classics. And so, you know, when you find those films, as many people have found this year, when you see some of the box office for these indie films, you you double down and you you keep building on that. One thing I always thought was uh, really interesting about what you guys uh, do at the Orchard is that. You believe in transparency when mm-hmm. it comes to how you make money. You actually share that mm-hmm. publicly on yeah. certain films. Why did you decide to do that? I mean, nobody else seems remotely interested <laughs> in sharing that kind of information. Well, it's, 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 it can be dangerous for some. I mean, the origin, you know, the origins of the orchard, um, first and foremost, are based in a 20-year history of, of global music distribution, where labels and artists are. It's very important to them to understand how their mo- how their fi- sorry their films and movies, how their com their content, their albums, their songs, their tracks are performing. And so, from a very early stage, that DNA was built into the Orchard to share and be transparent. And we have engineers who've built these these backend dashboards that allow those those clients to see in real time how money's being spent against their films and where you know where the money's coming from the, di- the digital platform so for us when we really threw gasoline on the fire for building the film division back in 14 we wanted to do the same and what we heard from filmmakers was the one of the major frustrations was the two things um they have no had no idea how their movie was doing when they were going to recoup the, the recoupment of the investment, profitability, no no awareness whatsoever. They would get kind of a statement in the mail a year later and had to call somebody to figure out what it even meant. Um, and collaboration. That's the other thing that I'll talk about in a sec. But for us, we heard that loud and clear. And so, you know, we doubled down on it. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, as in, you know, we've continued to internally build and um, this dashboard on the back end that not only shows filmmakers what they're making in real time, but does this kind of projection of here are the contracted dollars we know are coming. We have a deal at Netflix for the next three years. This much money's coming in. Here's where we think profitability is going to happen. And this is all kind of you know under under the um, the main the guise of what we initially greenlit the movie at, what we thought it was going to do, so they can see all of these things, and. And we're super, we're super transparent about everything. We, we, I'm always surprised when I hear from filmmakers, we'll get an offer for a pay one license and we'll call them up and we'll say, we have these three platforms, it's HBO and it's Netflix and it's Amazon and here's why we would want to go with this one and here's what it means. And filmmakers say, we never get calls about this. Nobody, they just call us up and say, your movie's going to be on DirecTV and that's where it's going. And so for us, it, it requires a lot of time and effort but at the end of the day, I think the effort far outweighs the downside of being honest with them about what's going on. And that, that's the one problem I think that most filmmakers have when they come out of experiences, a bad experience with a distributor, is typically it's colored by a lack of communication, a lack of transparency, and a lack of um, aligned expectations. You know, if you don't, when people ask for an awards campaign, I mean, this is, here's a great example. We went to Cannes and we picked up Birds of Passage and we said, Birds of Passage, this is our, 
our focus for an awards campaign. Um, we told that to the filmmakers, and we said to them, we're not going to pick up another movie to compete with that. We are committed to this plan. And then we saw El Angel, or if I'm being good with the accent, El Angel mm-hmm. is what they say uh, in Argentina. And they came to us, and we, I said, I love the film, but we already committed to Birds of Passage. The only way we would distribute it is you need to be aware that we are not doing an awards campaign. We're doing it for birds. And if you're okay with that, knowing going in, we're not doing X, Y, and Z, we're not spending X, Y, and Z, then I need to go back to the Birds of Passage team and make sure they're okay with it. That's just how how we approach it. We find that it just, at the end of the day, is a better way to interact with folks. And El Angel was very appreciative, and they still wanted us to distribute their film, and the Birds of Passage filmmakers were, were happy for us to help them out in that way. And that that's kind of is like an example of how how we deal with our filmmakers. And it, as I said, it's, it takes a lot of time and effort. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, oh my gosh, we, you know, we have to do how many calls this week to socialize this, 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 and this. But it's a better experience. Um, so you were talking about coming on board in, in 2014, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, to help yeah. launch this film enterprise for, for the Orchard. Yeah. Why did the Orchard feel there was an opportunity here? It's not as if there have been a, a lot of success stories in, mm-hmm. in the indie film space. What, what did they see as a, a you know possible uh, source of profits? Well, I think they had they had witnessed the experience that uh, the music the music artists had had with them as a company. You know, this is this is a global di- distribution network. This is not we're going to handle this piecemeal and that piecemeal. It was the infrastructure was there in such a significant way. Um, and the writing was on the wall with respect to the changing of the windows and the new platforms of opportunity with um, with video content, with film and television, that they felt like if we could, if, as a company, we could offer that sem- similar life cycle you know, planning and support for content, that there was a value there. If you look at the landscape of indie distributors, there's very few indie distributors that actually handle from A to Z. You know, some indie distributors will handle marketing and releasing of their theatricals, and then a studio takes their digital, and another company takes their physical. We handle, aside from us, you know, the only thing we don't do internally is we do work with Lionsgate on our bigger titles to release them through their DVD infrastructure because we just, at this point in the DVD life cycle, um, that business is not growing, and so it was something we didn't feel like we needed to build. But internally, as a company, for us to be able to offer filmmakers and content creators that end-to-end opportunity where it's not a different team every six months as a new window opens up. It's the same team. They're leveraging all the great work and marketing materials and assets and critical acclaim from the first window for the second window. And that digital window you know, success is being leveraged for you know, when it's on AVOD services. And so it just it's a seamless opportunity. And we felt that that would be something that folks would be, you know, interested in, and they have been. Has it been um, more difficult than you expected to to get into this space? I mean, what what are some things that uh, surprised you when it came to really making it a name for yourself? Well, I think when we so the first Sundance we all went to after we kind of. You know, again, before I came in, we were doing some level of you know digital distribution just for you know other companies like the Scholastics or the MBAs or the Red Bulls, but um, there was no theatrical component. The level of the content or the portfolio was candidly n- there wasn't much there. Um, and so when we went into Sundance in 2015, 
you know, we I always joke that like there was the 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 new kid on the block tax because you know you're bidding on a movie and what can you what do you have to show for it? What can you point to to say, hey, trust us on our reputation? You know, give us the movie for X because look at all the other great stuff we've done. At that that scenario and that in that festival that wasn't there, so we had to pay you know the new kid tax on a certain set of movies, and then that gave us the content that we needed to de- deliver and show people over that year what we could do and the level of capabilities that we had. And then suddenly you're, you know, what's happened over the years is you build these relationships. You, you know, this producer now is this new movie, this director have his, has his next film, people talk. And at the end of the day, you know, I always say this to people who were, were pitching on wanting to distribute their film. You can, you can literally throw a rock and hit somebody in the space now in indie space who's worked with us and Go talk to them. They'll tell you what the experience has been like. And typically we even, because we're not only doing theatricals, we're releasing, you know, we're acquiring somewhere like 30 to 40 films, like films like The Party's Just Beginning or Paul Lieberstein's um, Song of Back and Neck, which just came out last week. Um, these are day and date releases. So they're, you know, New York and L.A. or 10 city day and dates. We're picking up 30 to 40 of those. We're distributing another couple hundred films on digital every year. So what's funny is you constantly see people who are producing smaller films that we may not put out in theaters, and they want the brand. They want the logo on the front of their movie. Like There's a level of um, awareness um, and respect based on the brand and the kind of movies we put out. And so it's fun to see. So how would you define that brand? What what makes The Orchard different than Sony Pictures Classics or Bleecker Street or Neon? What What is sure. an Orchard film? Well, I'd say, um, first and foremost, we're championing, championing um, the new voices in film. If you look at uh, a slate of our films, typically one-third to half of those films are new filmmakers, new voices. Um, you know, Bart Layton's American Animals, his first narrative film, Taika Waititi, uh, Joachim Trier. I mean, there are filmmakers who um, they're coming to us in their first, you know, with Joachim, his first English language film was Louder Than Bombs. Um, we like playing that in that space of let's be the first experience with this filmmaker. And let's hope that we do such a great job that we have an opportunity to keep building on that with them. I always, my metaphor is like, we're not, we're not buying the star pitcher of the baseball team. We're buying the rookies and we're hoping to build those rookies into star pitchers. Sometimes those star pitchers will then go to another larger company, which typically happens. I mean, you know, Taika, Taika does well on his smaller movies and he directs Thor Ragnarok. Like these things happen and that's okay. But we're very focused on building those relationships, building a family of, of talent that um, we're there in the beginning. Movies that we pick up oftentimes are, they're not easy. You can't just put them in a box. Like a movie like American Animals is not an easy sell, but the craft of it is so amazing and so entertaining that we like the challenge of trying to figure out how to um, make audiences aware of these films and, and, and share our passion on those films. We typically don't um, focus on older demo content. If, even if you look at something like The Hero with Sam Elliott, it still had a kind of a youthful energy to it with the rest of the cast. With you know, it was um, a little experimental actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, with Nick Offerman and and so, um, you know, so there are companies that are very you know, w- there are movies that you can look at that you can see at a festival and you know they're going to do just fine. They have a certain level of cast. If they're a little bit older in their demo. That's those are the folks who they go to movies all day long. You know that like something like a 
um, you know, like The Wife with Glenn Close or, you know, some of the films that Bleecker puts out. They're, they are solid, cast-driven. They, you just know that they're going to work in that space. We, um, we recognize that opportunity, but I think we were a bit younger in our sensibilities and, um, and we like to challenge ourselves. We're going to spend all of our waking hours focusing on these films, which we do, um, we want to we want to be excited about the both the opportunity. We like the David versus Goliath mentality of let's you know find the underdog and and let it you know find its audience. Um, you know, every once in a while we'll pick up something something super commercial. Um, but you know, that's that's kind of like when people talk about the orchard and they talk about the films. They say the one thing that we know is when I see the logo at the front of a movie that it's a quality film. It's got a, you know a certain level of craft. Uh, to it, and I know that I'm going to, you know, at least walk away. I may not love the film, but I'll be, recognize the fact that it's well made, and there's there's an audience for it. Um, for the most part, it seems like most of your movies are picked up at at festivals. Um, a lot of companies have felt that that's kind of a, a bit of a dangerous strategy mm-hmm. that they can end up getting involved in bidding wars and, and losing their shirts. So they've gone into producing their own content. Um, are you going to do that? Are you doing more of that? Well, <clears throat> we did last summer. We produced, we funded the whole production of a film called Under the Eiffel Tower, which is you know it's Gary Cole, it's Matt Walsh, it's Reed uh, Reed um, Reed Scott from Veep, um, Judith Godrich from The Overnight. Um, it's a, a light romantic comedy um, with a lot of comedy talent. That was an example of something where the the script came to us, the cast was all in place, and. You know, if we were going to a festival and trying to pick up that film, we probably would have paid more for it versus funding it and then having all worldwide rights on it. So now that's a film that we'll put out in February, day and date with theaters, and our own internal team sells it to markets across the world. But I'll say, that being said, that it is a risk. Uh, even pre-buys are a risk. I mean, we've we there was a point in time, especially when we were going to the festivals and these bidding wars were out of control because. SVOD services were also trying to fill their coffers as well, where we said, look, we maybe, maybe we need to get into some of these movies a little bit earlier so we don't have to get into these bidding wars. And in some scenarios, those that worked out. And in some scenarios, some of those movies, when you finally, finally got to see the film, it wasn't necessarily the film that we had thought we were going to get. And so for us, especially in, at this point in time in the industry and where things are at, um, where there's, a less, there's, there's enough content to go around, finished content, our focus is definitely more on the finished product space. Now, there will be, if Taika Waititi came to me tomorrow and said, I'm ready to do the sequel to what we do in the shadows, we'd write him a check. If, you know, there's certain filmmakers that we know what we're getting and we'll, we would do that. But I think from an approaching like a brand new filmmaker with, uh, who's unproven, that's looking for someone to come in and fund the entire production, I think for us, that's probably not what we're going to be doing. So, I... I've always been sort of interested in one of these all-night bidding wars that you hear about, and they're always sort of breathlessly yes. reported. Yeah. Uh, what is it actually like to be kind of in the room? And, and also, you know, at some point, you have to be rational, and maybe you just absolutely love a movie, but you realize that the bidding's gotten out of control and you have to walk away. So what is that feeling like, too, when you, when you have to s- say, you know, I'm out? Uh, yeah, it's it's it can be frustrating. I mean, typically, you see the movie, you love the movie, you run back to your house, <clears throat> you start running the numbers. 
You're running. I mean, for us, we're running the numbers. We're doing the comps. We're quickly because if it's Friday night of Sundance, you want the filmmakers to to see that offer that night because if everybody you know on the other side of the of the, this whole experience, filmmakers watch the offers come in, and if it takes three days for somebody to come in on with an offer, they may not. They may be less interested because it looks like it took them too long. They weren't that passionate about it. So you know, you want to get in an offer quickly. Um, typically for us, we just have a set of you know corporate approvals we have to go through at a certain level, um, and then you know the conversation that always happens is the agents. I mean, it's so it's maddening at times because it's like buying a house at real estate. You don't know, you only can you know gauge what they're telling you as the truth, um, and there's always like a number that you have to be at if you want to get in the room and pitch the filmmakers. So it's like. You send an offer and they say, no, it's, it's seven figures or you won't even get a chance to talk to the filmmakers. And that's, that's where we win. That's where anybody wins a movie is getting in the room and talking about how you see the film and what you're going to do with it. So there's that, trying to get in the room. Then there's, you know, in the room, pitching the filmmakers and the producers on what, what you're going to do with it. And then eventually after the, the pitching happens, then the agents do their thing and it becomes, you know, back and forth where they're constantly trying to get that number up as high as they can. And sometimes you may be the higher number. And I, I actually like this. Like, I, I like the scenario that the filmmakers go with a lower number because of the filmmaker, the, because of the company they want to be with. To me, I'll, I'm happy to lose a film that way every day of the week because that it's not just about the dollars it's about the plan it's about the people it's about the um the release that they're going to you know mount for the film um but you know there have been many films over the years where it's come down to us and another company and you you're sometimes you lose it for a hundred thousand dollars because in the moment to your point you say i i spent as much as i can i can't go another hundred and then of course you know in hindsight you watch these movies that you lost for a hundred thousand dollars do Eight million at the box office, and you say, "Shoot! Like we, it was only a hundred grand. Like we should have just, you know." But you just, it, it's like eBay. Like I, I don't go on eBay anymore because eBay for me is a problem. It's you get sucked into that, and you have to, you have to know. At least for us, everybody has this. You have a budget. You know what your budget is for the year. You know how many movies you you need to um, to buy with that budget. And if you're going to overspend on one, you're going to have to underspend on others. And but it gets it, it's 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 tough, especially if it's Monday or Tuesday in Sundance. You haven't picked up anything, and now you found the, the here's the movie you want, and the bidding is getting to a point where it doesn't make sense for you. You have to make a, a call, like, well, what are you going to do? Where are you going to get the rest of your content? Well, it also seems that sometimes the price is sort of an albatross for filmmakers. Like, I always think like Happy Texas is. In every article about (laughs) somebody, you know, overspending at Sundance, was that actually good for them in the end? They may have won that Sundance, but because the movie underperformed at the box office, it has sort of a target on its back. I mean, sometimes it seems very short-sighted of filmmakers to to try to kind of... um, artificially goose uh, the price tag. I think, you know, it's interesting. Nobody knows at Sundance what a film's going to do we all know those movies that went from 10 to 20 million over the last couple of years that didn't deliver anywhere near that in box office but in the heat of the moment I mean all of those movies were great experiences at Sundance they were films that people loved and I can see I can I get it I get in the heat of the moment I get why movies like you know a patty cakes or a you know a um, big sick um, why they go for certain numbers because they have these great screenings 
um, and you just don't know. Again, it's like it's it's instinct. I, you know, my philosophy is you might as well live or die based on your instinct and your passion for something because putting any other kind of logic behind why you're choosing a movie, it, it, it makes as much sense as passion or instinct at the end of the day. And I'd rather fail or succeed based on feeling something for a film and then figuring it out after versus the alternative. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you uh, coming in and sharing your insight, and I'll see you at Sunday. All right. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.